I'm Barbara Klinger, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers, and get to know the person behind the persona. We're honored and delighted to have film director Werner Herzog in the WFIU studios today on Profiles. He is here as a patent lecturer and will also visit classrooms, research centers, and participate in Q&A sessions after the screenings of some of his films at the IU Cinema. Born in Munich during World War II, Herzog has enjoyed a career of almost unimaginable richness and diversity. Beginning in 1962, he has written, produced, and directed more than 50 films for the big screen and television, including Aguirre, The Wrath of God, Fitzcarraldo, Rescue Dawn, Grizzly Man, and Cave of Forgotten Dreams. And he's won awards at the Berlin, Cannes, and Sundance Film Festivals, among many others. Besides being an author, he has also directed theater productions and operas and acted in film and television, including a stint as a character on The Simpsons. His most recent film, currently in pre-production, is Queen of the Desert, starring Naomi Watts and Robert Pattinson. So welcome, Mr. Herzog. We are, as I said, really delighted to have you here and have a chance Thank to you. be able to talk to you. I wanted to start with a kind of general background question, and it has to do um, with how your name first came to prominence as a film director as part of New German Cinema, a post-World War II movement involving fellow directors whom you know very well, Vim Wenders and Rainer Werner Fassbinder and others. And I was wondering if you could tell us something about your filmmaking career during this early period and also when you felt this way of discussing your work expressly as a German filmmaker transitioned into something else. Well, I always felt and I still feel uncomfortable of being part of what is considered the new German way for the young German cinema, which was the first uh, generation of filmmakers after the Second World War. So in other words, we had grown up as the first ones uh, beyond the barbarism of the Nazi regime. But uh, I had a different background than all the other filmmakers. And I had a different vision and a different grammar of filmmaking, a different vocabulary. So it, it doesn't feel right to see me in the context with them. And at various moments, I was invited to collective works. For example, there was a film... Um, during the time when terrorists in Germany of the Red Army fraction, Bader Meinhof gang, put a lot of uh, terror and pressure on the uh, on Germany, and uh, Germany was um, in in a way under siege, and filmmakers at that time and the public, the general public, journalists believed that this was a return to a repressive police state like during the Nazis. And I always said, no, it doesn't uh, sound right. Uh, there are real attacks and there's a, there's a regular response to it. Don't freak out over it. And I did not participate in a common film that was made, uh, Germany in Autumn. Or, for example, during the Students' Rebellion in 1968, May 1968, which was France, Germany, United States, by the way, as well. And um, there was something going on like uh, Germany is a repressive police state, which uh, has to be somehow overcome and vanquished. And I didn't find this analysis uh, right. And I didn't find the the recipe right, how to overcome it. The postulate at that time was, as a filmmaker, you have to serve the world revolution. And all of Germany has to dissolve in communist, uh, in small communist unities into a patchwork of, uh, uh, of, of little... Uh, Soviet states within itself. So I thought this was all pretty silly and didn't have to do with uh, our reality. For a whole decade, I was uh, somehow labeled the fascist filmmaker, which <laughs> at that time it was just a regular thing to do. And I didn't really feel as part of my of my generation. And my background was different. I grew up in the mountains in Bavaria 
without much knowledge of the world outside. We had no radio, we had no telephone, we had no running water. We had to fetch water at the well with a bucket. We had no uh, water closet, uh, toilet. There was just an outhouse. And I had no knowledge of cinema. In other words, uh, until I was 11, I didn't see films, but I didn't even know that films existed until a traveling projectionist arrived at the schoolhouse and I saw two films that didn't really impress me much. Can you remember what they were? Yeah, one was about Eskimos building an igloo and, and they were really bad at the job. I think it was all paid extras who did a bad job and I could tell right away this doesn't, this doesn't look like people who, who know much about snow. Whereas I grew up in the snow and on skis and I had quite quite an idea. And the other was about pygmies building a woven liana bridge across a river, I believe somewhere in Cameroon, in the jungle of Africa, which was kind of better. But, but you have to see uh, me as somebody who was somehow cut off, mm -hmm. I wouldn't say all of civilization, but of the technology of civilization. I saw agriculture as if it still were in medieval times. That means everything by hand. It was not mechanized agriculture yet. Hay would be made uh, with sights and by hand and forks to, to turn it over. And um, later then I saw the first tractors. So it's it moved into more mechanized agriculture. Today it's... Uh, completely different as you have seen and here in the Midwest, in the American Midwest. It's all digitized now. You have gigantic fields of corn, for example, and the, the tractors are not even steered by humans anymore. They are steered by, I think, uh, satellite, global satellite uh, systems to, to keep them exactly in a straight line over miles and miles of terrain. So uh, it has changed, the world has changed drastically within my own lifetime in an enormous way. And you should see me as somebody who uh, made his first phone call when I was 17. Mm -hmm. So that gives you an idea. And in a way, I didn't belong to the world of filmmaking that was around me that I saw emerging with other young people. But they grew up in cities. They grew up uh, with a different background. They had no real knowledge of the real world, which I had because I traveled on foot from early on, 15 years of age on. I had been in Africa. I had been in all sorts of countries. And I had a more physical contact to the real world than all the others. I hadn't thought about traveling exhibitors, but of course they existed worldwide. And it, and it's, inter it's interesting that your first contact with, cin with cinema was through these itinerant showmen, I guess, and that the films that you saw were not um, commercial films, but films made that were sort of semi-ethnographic documentaries. Yeah, and they had to fit into a school program, so... Yeah, uh, in so a way, it's educational with educational value. And what um, what led you to want to be a wandering, traveling person? I do not know. It just uh, it just came to me. Because that's one of the things that obviously shows up in your films. I've read that you've made films on all continents. Yes, I'm the only one, I <laughs> guess, I, which I, is I, embarrassment because <laughs> an embarrassment. I don't want to end up in the Guinness Book of World Records. <laughs> but there has no, but never been a filmmaker who made professional films in, on all continents, including Antarctica. So I guess, I mean, given the fact that you're, um, if I can call you an intrepid explorer, I know you probably prefer not to be called that, but you are an explorer and an adventurer when you go onto these seven continents. You go to places that many people have never been. And I'm wondering, um, again, if, if what attracts you to worlds that, were, that are outside your immediate experience and the, and the people in them? Curiosity. Yeah. Just plain curiosity. And, uh, of course, uh, when, when you're out there somewhere in Africa or in Australia or in Antarctica, 
in a way stretching out the feelers in trying to come to terms with our planet. It it always reflects back on you. Uh, you start to uh, to understand yourself better, and it's the same thing with languages. When you learn other languages, all of a sudden your own language, your mother tongue, comes into sharper profile. And you become much more attentive to to details and in uh, f- the flair of language, in the poetry of language. So I I would highly recommend uh, to anyone learn languages, travel on foot, go out there, and it's it's all gonna put you into sharper profile, into sharper contrast. Just following up on this for a little bit, one of the things that one can't help but be struck by when they're watching your films, whether they're your fiction films, your documentary films, your shorts or your feature films, that, of course, the landscape is also immensely important to the to the visual and as well as to whatever story is being told. And sometimes those landscapes seem abject, as in uh, Lessons from Darkness or Fata Morgana, sometimes they seem sublime, encounters at the end of the world, and also Cave of Forgotten Dreams. And sometimes they seem like they're both grizzly man. Um, and maybe they're always both in, in your mind. But the, the landscapes, are are they abject? Are they sublime? Um, what are you um, intending um, to convey with all the attention you pay to such places? Well, I, it's not that I have a didactic sort of program. <laughs> I love to shoot outside of studios, which is a very artificial environment anyway. And I, I can see, I can read landscapes better than others. I, I know that. Uh, and in in a certain way, I keep saying you can even direct landscapes the way you can direct an actor, you can direct to a certain degree, you can direct animals. So animals always are directed and staged in my films and landscapes in the same way as are staged and directed and uh, orchestrated. But landscapes have never been a backdrop, a scenic backdrop of a film. Uh, you, you would see that in commercials, for example, where you would have... Uh, commercial for, a, let's say, a perfume in front of a tropical waterfall, something like that. But the waterfall itself, the scenic waterfall, is is just the scenic backdrop which tries to promote a product. Uh, in my case, a landscape is always something like an inner landscape, a state uh, of, of our mind. Uh, in other words, uh, the jungle of uh, the Amazon basin is is not a backdrop. It is a it's a human quality. It has to do with our fever dreams. It transforms in something which I would call an inner landscape. And there are some painters like um, Caspar David Friedrich, a German romantic painter, by the way, who did very much the same. He, all his landscapes in the solitude of human beings in a landscape and uh, being forlorn out there. He, uh, the term comes from him, I think, uh, when he speaks of inner landscapes. But that's about my only connection which I have to romantic culture. People always think I I have a certain affinity. No, I don't. I do not have an affinity to romanticism or romantic culture. So there's a philosophical um, component, obviously, in the way that you direct your landscapes. Is there also an ecological dimension? I have to be careful about both the philosophical dimension mm. because I, I do not really engage in abstract thought when I make a film. I sense a landscape. I know how to deal with it. I know how to film it. Um, and ecology, of course, is yet another superimposed concept upon upon nature. And in a way, uh, although at heart uh, I feel fairly close to the ecological movement, I'm at at the same time at loggerheads with them. Why? Uh, Because um, it has become such a 
a political movement of almost exclusivity as if other things didn't exist in the well-being of salad leaves in the well-being of uh, uh, certain species of whales has become more important than e the ecology of the human heart or ecology, something preservation of human cultures. I have a huge conflict with the um, ecological movements over dying out human cultures. And uh, we have to understand that we have something like six and a half thousand uh, spoken languages still remaining on this planet, and they dwindle away very rapidly. And tribal groups are dying out. And we know that at, that, at the rate at which we are losing cultures and languages, we will uh, lose about 95 percent of all spoken languages on this planet within the next 50 years. And I have seen very last final, I mean the very, very last only uh, and final speaker of a language. And there's a, a profound tragedy around uh, such a human being. It's, of course, when in one case an aborigine in Australia who was quite old and I met him 25 years ago, he's certainly dead by now and with him his whole language culture is gone and irretrievably gone. And um, I find this uh, catastrophe of enormous proportions. And uh, for the ecological movement, uh, uh, this issue doesn't exist at all. It's all fluffy, fluffy little seal babies that are being slaughtered and things like this. So um, I have an ambivalent relationship with the ecologist movement. And uh, your films have actually recorded some of those peoples as well, so they have an ethnographic component too. I'm thinking of Aguirre um, and Fitzcarraldo both in terms of indigenous peoples. We should be careful. It's, yeah. it's not really uh, that I do things as an eth ethnographer. Uh, I, I try to, to keep away. That's a special dimension of studies, which which is actually not my studies. However, uh, I'm fairly close to them because there's always an anthropological quest in, in my films, and we should say it with a necessary caution. I've always been uh, fascinated by what constitutes our humanness, the state of our human existence right now, the status quo. And uh, I think literature always has done it, or great literature has always done it to uh, search for uh, what constitutes us at this specific time in, in history, the human condition. And this is nothing specific. Uh, ethnography would be much more specific and it would mean uh, certain groups of people who have this and that sort of quality of living together and this or that quality of their culture. And uh, I'm not into that. I, I am thinking about your films in terms of the various boundaries they cross between film genres. And, and interestingly, you don't seem to fall into any particular category. So people will refer to your films as documentaries, sometimes ethnographies, um, fiction films. And I always myself sense that there's an avant-garde component, a, a kind of tendency, um, sometimes very gentle, sometimes uh, bolder toward abstraction that, that wants to lead the viewer into some other way of looking at your films. And I, I wonder how you see your films as navigating between these various existing categories, if you're drawing things from them or if you hope to challenge them or transcend them in some ways. Well, I think everything you are saying is in a way right. Uh, however, I don't make an attempt to define what constitutes a documentary, what constitutes an avant-garde film, what constitutes a traditional narrative structure of a, of a feature film. Um, for me, it's all movies and I don't care much about genres. And there are films that I've made where you will until today after so many years that the films are out like Fata Morgana translated Mirage where I shot Mirages 
I filmed mirages in the Sahara Desert where you can categorize is, is this a documentary? No, it is not. Is it a feature film? No, it is not. Is it a science fictionally film? Maybe to some extent, but it doesn't have a, it doesn't have a, a shelf where it would fit into. And, and you know what? I don't care. Well, I think I mean obviously. The I film mean, is beautiful. Yeah, the film the film is beautiful, and I'm remembering in Fata Morgana there are those long lateral tracks you have across the landscape, where and of different things in the landscape, and you can't always tell exactly what they are when they're mirages. And then other things, um, there are dead animals who are who are decaying into the earth, and you don't know exactly what brought on their demise. So you're, um, unless you're absolutely familiar with the the region and its history, so there there are those things that it's it's a document, but the meaning of that document is not always completely tangible. And it's never tangible. It's never tangible, yes. right? It's never tangible. <laughs> you have to resign yourself. You just, just sit there, open your senses, and uh, and look what the film is showing you, and uh, and then it's gonna be probably rewarding if you are sitting there to expect an ecological statement. You will fail, and you would feel miserable. And if you try to uh, wait for the science fiction movie. Uh, you, you would wait until the end and the science fiction movie wouldn't really emerge. But it has a lot of elements in it that are very strangely put together. And uh, it's and, and I've done some other films like a science fiction film, some sort of a science fiction film, The Wild Blue Yonder, where you everybody's puzzled is what the hell is this? And it's it's really something very intense, very beautiful, very strange. And... Um, in other words, uh, I I really do not care about categories. Yeah, I I think I I think I was remarking too on the fact that you um, that it is hard to pin you down or put you in a category because of the way that your films weave in and out of these various categories that exist outside of your work and that people continually yeah. want to situate you within. But if I could bring up um, an example of um, Little Dieter Needs, Needs to Fly, fly yeah. and then um, that was made in 1998, and then yes. you went um, you went on to make Rescue Dawn, which uh, appeared in 2006. The first film features the real Dieter um, in a reenactment of what happened to him after he was shot down over Laos during the Vietnam War, and the next is a is a film with Christian Bale, and I, as I understand it, it's adapted from a screenplay from the first film. It's simpler, maybe even more complicated. Uh, when I came across Dieter Dengler, he was the only American POW who managed to escape in the Vietnam War. All the others uh, were liberated after after the end of the Vietnam War. Dieter and I always had one single plan, and that was we do a feature film. And we couldn't finance it right away. So we said to each other, let's do a, let's do a documentary. You will be Dieter yourself. You play your own part, and it will be a, a documentary. However, the feature film that wasn't made yet influenced the documentary. And uh, then after that, I wrote a screenplay which focuses on, on different things, uh, on uh, some details that are not so much explained in the documentary. So it's more an inner story that takes place in um, Rescue Dawn, the feature film with uh, Christian Bale. So it's a very strange uh, uh, way that... A film, a feature film that it didn't exist yet, influenced the documentary. Yeah, I, I, that that is a very unusual situation. But in what ways did it influence the documentary? I think in the in the kind of flow of narration, and in the way dreams are shown and invented. And you see, the dreams were not Dieter Dengler's dreams. I I invented them. And uh, I invented them because I wanted to have a more intensified interior story of Dieter. And for the sake of uh, looking very deep into the heart of this man, I would start to invent. And you actually get a deeper, 
uh, a deeper uh, stratum of the man. And um, for the sake of, of this truth, this deeper layer, this deeper stratum of truth, I would start to stylize. I would start to invent. I would start to uh, fabricate certain things. And all of a sudden you have the deepest depth of Dieter Dengler visible. And this is what I call e the ecstasy of truth, a, a truth where uh, somebody steps out of himself or a film story steps out of itself and for the sake of a very deep truth uh, steps beyond the purely factual in order to reach an illumination. And typically... And that's a very good example. That, that is a great example. Um, and, and would you then look at the Rescue Dawn film as a realization of the same thing but in a different register? Well, I always wanted to do this feature film and uh, uh, there was not much uh, thinking about what else would I like to show. It was always uh, there in my uh, in my inner eye, I saw the film all the time, so no much thinking. I, the moment it was financed, I, I went uh, into it. And in this case, I like that there are two films and they complement each other. It's a good relationship that they have uh, with each other. And sometimes these uh, things happen and uh, there's a certain evidence uh, that um, both films have their own... Uh, right of life. And it is interesting in the first one that you have reenactments, which then later on in the fiction film become um, less less sort of outwardly reenactments, but are in fact reenactments as well. And that that with actors with actors, India, yeah. yeah. Now, the two films do coexist very well together. Yeah, and they both have their own um, identity at the same time. I wanted to move a little bit beyond your film work for a second because you are prolific in other areas as well. And thinking about yourself as an author, um, thinking about your opera work, your film work, is there a way in which um, when, you, when you go from one medium to the other that it allows you to realize a different aspect of your vision or allow you to exercise your artistic muscles in a different way? No, it's uh, things are just coming at me, and I I have never planned a career, and I've, for example, I've never planned ever in my life to stage operas. Until today, I can't even read music scores, and until today, I have not watched operas as a spectator, but I stage operas, and because I have no idea how opera is supposed to look like and what the trends and tendencies are out there in directing operas, I have no clue. And because of that, my stagings look different, and all of a sudden, audiences uh, are, are quite interested in, in a completely different vision that is outside of all trends. Or I do acting. I, I love everything that has to do with cinema, writing, uh, directing, editing, music, uh, and acting. And I have been in a film with Tom Cruise now, which I will know. be out. Well, we should talk about it that. Will be, it will be out uh, in um, December, just shortly before Christmas. It's going to open in the United States. Jack Reacher. Jack Reacher, yes. And, and I play a villain. There, there's quite a few villains, but they all have guns. I have no gun. That's not fair. Radical shift, but um, I read that you got the part of Zek in Jack Reacher, um, yeah. who's a villain from the original novel. How Which did, I never read. How, how I did have you, no idea. Yeah. How did you come to be cast as a villain in a Tom Cruise movie? I'm always good as a villain whenever it comes to <laughs> to characters vile and debased and dysfunctional and dangerous and hostile. I'm always good. And I do believe that... Um, Director and Tom Cruise in the production company were searching for a, a villain, um, not the ones who just open fire or yell and shout and intimidate somebody who was going to be scary before he even speaks. And they came apparently to the conclusion that it was me. Uh, I have seen the film so far and I think I was cast correctly because I am scary. 
I do things that are that seem unusual and out of context, but in fact they are not. And the strange thing is that in in regular in private life. It's kind of foreign, this kind of hostility or, or dysfunction. I'm a very well-functioning human being. And according to my wife, she will testify to it, I'm a fluffy husband. So, but why it comes easy to me to, to play a villain, I don't know. And I've done recently other stuff like um, the Whitney Museum uh, had a Biennale uh, in the spring. And they invited me to to do an installation or anything, and I immediately said no. And they asked, "Yeah, but you are, uh, haven't you seen the Whitney?" And so I said, "No, I never go to museums." And I said, "No." And they said, "Yeah, but aren't you an artist yourself?" I said, "No." And they asked, "What then? What what are you then?" And I said, "I'm a soldier. I feel much more like a." like a good soldier of cinema, but not like an artist. But my wife persuaded me to take it seriously, and I did an installation which is called Hearsay of the Soul. And uh, it became the big attraction uh, during this Biennale, and now the, uh, the Whitney Museum wants to acquire it on a permanent basis. Congratulations. That's wonderful. What is uh, comprised of the exhibition? Well, it's uh, it's a room uh, where on the left wall, on the front wall, and on the right wall there are there are images projected, and it's images uh, of a painter of an artist who is completely unknown, even to curators of museums. His name is Hercules Segers, early Rembrandt time. So, in other words, in sixteen twenty, sixteen ten, sixteen twenty. He would do uh, images that are only that are completely visionary, that are only seen again in the twenty in the twentieth century. So he was hundreds of years ahead of his time, and in my opinion, the father of all modernity. And it also has music, and I think here this station can play a piece of music. I believe it's a piece. That is one of the pieces of music. Uh, it is Sardinian voices, shepherds who are singing, I mean, in the mountains of Sardinia, and a voice from um, uh, Senegal, from Africa, singing along. And it has a, and Ernst Reisiger, a cello player who plays uh, in an avarga way uh, his cello. So it's it's a very unusual and very beautiful music. So it's images and music that uh, somehow flow into each other, and it's uh, as as if you had some sort of a hearsay of the soul, something that echoes over centuries into your own heart. And in a way, I I do feel. Uh, that there's an affinity between me and Hercules Segas, although I cannot really explain it, and and there's no direct evidence. This image uh, looks like a Herzog film, or vice vice versa. It's not like this. It's more. I wrote a text, and it says at the end, uh, "Our images do not speak to each other." However, I have a suspicion that they dance with each other. I'm Barb Klinger. Today we're speaking with filmmaker Werner Herzog, who has directed such films as Fitzcarraldo and Cave of Forgotten Dreams. We'll be back after this.
You just heard Sanctus from the album Requiem for a Dying Planet. The piece was composed by Ernst Reisiger for today's guest, Werner Herzog. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Ernst Reisiger yeah. um, did the music for Cave of Forgotten Dreams as yes. well. And I remember in the opening shot, it goes for a while, your your narration comes in, but the music is there. And the music is, I don't know if the correct word for it is choral music. I don't, I don't know if there's a way to categorize his music either, but it has a huge impact on that film. And I know that sound and music are both important to you. Would you like to talk a little bit about collaborating with him on some of the projects you have? Well, yes. uh, He uh, is a great discovery for me, and I have worked uh, very closely with him, and I I would always be there during the recordings, and I would always be with the musicians. I would never be in the control room separated from from the musicians and there's something we have in common where we understand each other and he can translate things into into music that um, I think is very unique and uh, totally beautiful and totally strange and unheard of he's a great ingenious man and what can I say? We have more things that we want to do together. And it's maybe interesting, two films, um, The Wild Blue Yonder, a science fiction film, and The White Diamond. Uh, we created the music before the film was, before these films were shot. In other words, uh, the images and the rhythm of images had to follow the music and I remember the uh, cinematographer, an Austrian cinematographer, Peter Zeitlinger, asked me, how shall I do the camera? What sort of camera is, does this require? Just put the ear, earphones, over, headphones over his ears. And, and I said, listen to this. This is, <laughs> this is how we have to do it. And I played Ernst Reisiger's music to him. And and it makes Cave of Forgotten Dreams part of what it is. The overall impact that film has visually and yeah. orally, um, his 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 uh, music brings it alive in a particular kind of way. Yeah. I think another fascinating thing about that film is not just the subject matter, which were these thirty two thousand year old uh, cave paintings that were discovered and that you had the privilege to to be able to film but also the fact that it was your first venture into 3D digital filmmaking. And uh, the 3D cameras, if, you, if people have seen the film in 3D, it's very different experience than watching it in 2D. So what led you to, the, to, to take the, the plunge, I guess you could say, into 3D? Well, I never had any intentions to shoot in 3D. And I had seen photos of some of these cave paintings which, in fact, as you said, date back to 32,000 years in time, and it can be measured fairly precisely through radiocarbon dating of uh, little fragments of charcoal. Some of these, or many of the images were made with uh, charcoal, so we know pretty well when it was done. And they, were twice as, they are twice as old than the oldest ever, ever discovered, or more than twice as old, like Lascaux and Altamira in Spain, uh, we know they date back to, let's say, 14,000 years, 12,000 years in time, but this is 32,000 years. And it has, uh, it, there's a sense of an abyss of time. Uh, and yet it looks very familiar in a way. It is us, it is our dreams, it is our uh, first articulation of art. And with the music of Ernst Reisiger, you have a full, how shall I say, um, gamut of of possibilities out there. Uh, You can insert yourself into these images. And inserting means, as I had seen photos, they looked like two-dimensional almost. 
and the photos didn't show the the wild formations of this cave, limestone cave, and it has wild bulges and niches and pendant rocks. And the artists of that time utilized the uh, the formations, the drama of the formations for expressive value. And I was allowed for one hour into the cave before shooting. In the moment I was inside, I knew it had to be in three dimensions in, in cinema. And because of that, uh, uh, I shot in 3D. It was imperative. But three-dimensionality does not only mean three-dimensionally in, in visual terms. It means also in terms of music, uh, it's very hard to explain it, but when you see the film, you would immediately understand. So in a way, this was a film where I knew it was imperative. You have to shoot it in 3D no matter what. And it does, um, the, all the undulating surfaces come out beautifully in 3D. Yeah. And, you see, and you see the paintings, the horses, yeah. um, panthers, lions, all of that um, is, is breathtaking in the way it was filmed and the way you conceived of how to film it. Um, I can imagine it being done with a lot less visual interest. Yeah. And there's also a component of time when I say 32,000 years, yes. Uh, some of it may be even older than that. But um, the presence of time and the absence of time is very strange. For example, you see uh, fairly fresh uh, footprints, tracks of cave bears. The cave bear is a species died out some 20,000 years ago. But the tracks are still there pretty fresh. So it's completely amazing. And in time, all of a sudden, is is separating yourself in an abyss and yet you have the presence of fresh footprints. And there's a footprint of a probably eight-year-old child and next to it the footprints of a wolf, which, by the way, we couldn't film because we were not allowed to leave a metal walkway which is only two feet wide. And for that we would have had to trample on the, on the ground and leave our own footprints. So, but, but we know from the explorers in their photos they are actually the footprints of, a, of probably a young boy and the footprints of a wolf. And we don't know, did they walk as friends together or did the wolf stalk the boy or did the wolf tracks come 8,000 years later? Uh, it's, it's this kind of speculation which makes it uh, so inscrutable or, or uh, these abysms of time. Um, you have, for example, a charcoal painting of a woolly mammoth and, and it's unfinished. Some other painter comes later and paints over it and, and com completes the first uh, sketches, completes it and draws halfway over it yet another uh, woolly mammoth. And through radiocarbon dating, we know that the other painter did that 5,000 years later. So it's, it's a layer upon of, layer. Yes, there, there is a, a sort of dimensionality to time which is outside of our grasp, and yet we are directly confronted with it. And in this case, I'm cautious to speak of 3D movie because everybody thinks, yes, it's 3D in terms of, of spatial 3D. There's, there are other components of three-dimensionality in it. That have to do with the people who originally did the paintings? Not only it has to do with us because I, I believe that the painter who com completed a, a painting that was done before him had no idea who did the first one and had no idea it was 5,000 years later mm -hmm. that he did it or she did it, but we don't know. <laughs> I do want to talk about some of your recent work, but before we get to that, um, you recently founded the Rogue Film School, and I've seen the platform for it, and I, I, I wonder what your experience of it has been so far. I have to speak about the origins of it first because uh, there has been a steady avalanche coming at me, and it has increased in recent years, but it started long, long time ago, decades ago. So many young people want to be my assistant or learn from me. 
And I wanted to give a systematic answer, an organized answer. And uh, I founded the Rogue Film School, which doesn't have, it neither has a place. It can be anywhere. It could be out on a meadow outside of Bloomington. It could be in an abandoned quarry in the Mojave Desert. And normally I would run it, I would do it as long weekend seminars in airport uh, hotels because the students would fly in from all over the world, I mean literally from all over the world, and I would negotiate an extremely low price for them to stay for three nights or four nights. And I would need, normally I would need a conference room where I can do projections because I would show their films, sometimes their films and discuss it with them, or I would show excerpts of films, similar things I'm planning to do here at the patent lectureship when I'm talking to students here, for example, I want to see their films, I want to show them excerpts of films, for example, for how to create the right timing by showing films, by the way, films that I have not made uh, myself, but uh, examples from films that have impressed me deeply. And uh, so the school is is not really a school because I'm the only one and I'm in discourse with the students. Uh, it's more about a way of life, a way of um, doing things that are, if necessary, outside the rule. Thought of a wonderful name for it. Yes, it's a guerrilla style, rogue, really rogue uh, film school. And um, I encourage them, for example, to uh, pick safety locks. You have to be able as a filmmaker to pick a lock once in a while. You have to be able to forge a document. Fitzcarraldo wouldn't have been possible without massive forgery of a shooting permit that I didn't have. But I even signed it with the name of the Peruvian president, Belaunde. And I signed it, and it's a beautiful document and very well crafted. And all of a sudden, military that's uh, blocked the way of my ship on the upper reaches of the Marañón River all of a sudden let me pass because the president of the republic had signed it and had allowed me. And it, in fact, it was a war zone, which we didn't know. And a, and a border war broke out soon afterwards between Ecuador and Peru, and I was caught in the middle of it. The um, students here are looking very much forward to their participation in in the Bloomington version of the Rogue Film School. No, it will not be. A, it won't be. No, it won't be. Uh, the Rogue Film School is too specific. Let's face it. But but this is something different. What will this be? I don't really know. I mean, some of it will be. It's called master class. Uh, I have no clear idea what a master class is, but. Uh, it's probably mostly discourse with a student and uh, sharing some of my my knowledge with them. It's a little bit the same also with a rogue film school. Uh, I see a responsibility to pass on certain things that I have learned. And uh, there's a lot of young people out there who, who really wants to connect with me and learn from me. And I don't really know what I'm going to do during this lecture. I have to think about it during lunch break. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll wrangle it somehow. Be before we close today, I did want to ask you, I know you have some um, projects that are coming up in 2012 and 13. And I wanted to ask you particularly about Queen of the Desert, which has Naomi Watts playing a British writer named Gertrude Bell. Yes. And what attracted you to this particular project and to that particular figure? It's a too long a story to explain it, but uh, she's a very fascinating uh, woman who was some sort of an equivalent to Lawrence of Arabia. And now recently there was a lot of fuss in the internet uh, about uh, Robert Pattinson, who is going to play Lawrence, the real Lawrence of Arabia, but it's a very small part. That's what nobody mentions, but he wants to work with me. And the second is the film is not financed yet. And hence, uh, mm -hmm. 
Uh, there's nothing to report about it. It may never be done. We don't know. But there are reports I'm already done shooting and there are reports that I start shooting in the fall and there are reports this and that uh, and the other. And I, I really don't care. The uh, Internet is very unreliable and uh, you should see it with a necessary caution. There are at least, I don't know, 12 uh, websites out with fake Werner Herzog's Facebooks, uh, imposters who imitate my voice. There are all sorts of things. It's like doppelgangers. It's like alter egos out there. And uh, I see it with, uh, I think, with, with a certain amount of satisfaction because there are these artificial uh, invented Herzogs out there and they are like my unpaid uh, bodyguards let them do the battle let them take the brunt of things and uh, I feel kind of safe behind all these invented Herzogs Well that is certainly one response to the, what happens on the internet um, but I hope very much that your film does get made I've read about I've read a little about Gertrude Bell and she sounds like a, a perfect historical person for you to center your film around so I hope you do get financing and I hope it gets off the ground We shall see yes but there's lots of other things I'm under contract to deliver seven films until uh, next fall and I'm working faster than than in years before, uh, when you said at the beginning, yeah, I made more than 50 films. By now, it's more than 60. Yeah. Because last year, I made six films. I'm exaggerating now a little bit because only one of them is a long, almost two-hour film, Into the Abyss. But I made four television films, which are one hour in length. And I made yet another film about uh, music. So it's there are six films, but, but not... Not all of them full-length feature films. I didn't realize that you were so prolific last year and, and into this year as well. But what what is one of the projects that looks like it is going to come together? That's uh, I cannot really speculate, so be it. Uh, you see, uh, so all the time these projects come come wildly swinging at me. It's like burglars. Uh, that have invaded your home. You get up at three in the morning because something is stirring in your kitchen and there are five burglars and one of them comes wildly swinging at you. So you better deal with that one first. So it's it's like that. That's how the films are coming at me. Maybe the uh, internet doppelgangers, the Werner Herzog doppelgangers can take on some of those projects as well. No, they are too stupid, but it's okay. <laughs> let, me, let me do that part, please. I think we're at the end of our conversation with Werner Herzog for today. And I want to thank you very much for being with us. This is Barbara Klinger for Profiles. Thanks again for listening. The program you just heard was recorded in September of 2012. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.